following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, how many of you uh, lost power yesterday? Just about everybody, quite a few people. How many of you still didn't have power this morning? Yeah, us cool upon eight people. We're the lucky ones. Yeah. In addition to all of that, uh, we had uh, roof tiles blow off our roof. And while it was pouring down rain, which flooded our house and caused problems. So all that while I was trying to get ready to preach a sermon for Easter. <laughs> so that was good. Uh, God is good. Okay, uh, let's... I'm getting some terrible feedback up here, Tom. Uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 28, and we read the um, first few verses. Uh, we'll read the whole chapter uh, again uh, as we look at uh, the resurrection of Jesus. So let's uh, start in verse 1, chapter 28 of Matthew. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, it's interesting how, of course, the, the resurrection is... Um, uh, is, is in all the Gospels, 
uh, and, and not just in a small way, not just a brief mention, it is a focal point of all the Gospels. But it's also interesting how differently uh, each of the Gospel writers tells the account of Jesus' resurrection. And Matthew um, uh, is very unique, and so we're going to look uh, at, at the whole kind of story, and we're going to tie some of it back into actually the accounts of, of his uh, crucifixion as well. Um, and uh, as, as we look at this, uh, what, what I was struck by as I was studying was uh, how uh, God's ways are not man's ways. Uh, Isaiah, 8, uh, Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare, declares the Lord. And the contrast between how God does things in and around the crucifixion and how man does things could not be more stark or more opposing. And so we want to look at that um, and see this gap and see how, how God goes about accomplishing his mission versus how people often accomplish theirs. And then I want to look at the end, and, and it's interesting, in Matthew, uh, there is the account of the Great Commission. And uh, how many of you have ever heard at a missions conference a sermon on the Great Commission? Okay, if you haven't, it's because you've never been to a missions conference, probably. Because... Um, and it's great, and, and as missionaries, a lot of us, uh, Christian workers working overseas, um, the Great Commission should be something we're very familiar with. But do you know, did you notice as I read it that it's, it's not an independent, standalone account at just the end of the Bible where Matthew said, oh, I ran out of things to say, but I forgot this one. Footnote. Go make disciples, right? No, it's actually, it's actually part of the resurrection story. It is very much tied in with uh, the resurrection. And so at the end of my message, I want to talk a little bit about um, putting these things together. Are we accomplishing God's mission, man's way or God's way? Right? And, and I think that's something that we all could reflect on. So it's kind of the, 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 the plan for this morning. Um, so let's jump into it. I want to start by looking, first of all, at, at, at the way man does things. The way people do things, man's way, not God's way. And, and of course, uh, in the account of Jesus' arrest and, and trial and crucifixion, we see, and even during, uh, after in the burial and in the resurrection, we see uh, people, uh, the, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel at work, uh, carrying out their plans, uh, thinking, I'm sure, in their own mind that they are doing God's work, that they're protecting God's temple. Um, but doing it very much in man's way. And so let's look at it. And, and the, uh, the phrase that seemed to me to, to capture this really well is the Nike motto, just do it. And that really captures in many ways man's way of doing things. Just do it, right? Just get out there and get it done, right? Um, man's way is to do what is ever necessary to get your own way and protect usually our own selfish interests. Or in some cases, as we'll see, to try to do God's work, right? Do whatever it takes. Get power on your side. Get money on your side. Get the right people on your side. And, um, and, and do what you feel you need to do, right? And in this case, the Jews, of course, are protecting their own glory and fame and reputation. And, and Jesus has got on the wrong side. They see Jesus as a huge threat to them, to their nation, to the temple, to their worship, to their authority, to their glory, because Jesus has undercut them uh, all along during his earthly ministry. 
Uh, and so we see their, their way, the man's way of doing things. First of all, uh, all the way back in chapter 26, we see them gathering to make a plan. Right? And that's what people do. And, and um, you know, don't take things too personally, but I'm going to kind of pick on some of the way we do things, right? Uh, how many of you ever have been, you know, at a meeting where you talked about doing ministry strategically? You don't have to raise your hand, right? You don't want to convict the guilty, I mean the innocent here. Um, because we all do that. There's nothing wrong with being strategic. There's nothing wrong with planning uh, necessarily. However, that is very much the way man does things. We make our plan. And of course, that's what they did. Matthew 26, 3 to 5, the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they're being strategic. They are planning. They are setting goals. They are making their annual ministry plan. Right? Well, actually, it's just for a week. Right? They're, they're plotting and planning. And again, we'll talk about this later. It's not, nothing wrong with planning. But, um, but whose plan is it? Right? Man's way is it's my plan. I'm going to come up with an action plan to carry out my purpose of my goal. And that's what they did. And then the next thing that they do is they find people who will uh, agree with them. And it's very interesting uh, in, in the account of Jesus' uh, arrest and, and trial, you see what were before total enemies in the religious world, all of a sudden best buddies. The Pharisees and the chief priests hated each other. And they argued and fought all the time. And, and in fact, uh, Paul later in Acts learns how to exploit the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees to get himself out of hot water several times. You just cry out, I believe in the resurrection. And let them go duke it out and you just watch, right? That's what Paul did. Uh, these guys did not like each other. They were not friends. They were not allies uh, until they had a common enemy, right? And so um, there's a certain sense in which we like power in numbers, we like, um, uh, we like for other people to agree with our plan. And here's, here's human thinking. And, and just check your mind on this if you've ever done this. Come up with our plan, and we think, you know, if I can present this plan to other people and they like it, it must be right. right? So that's what we do, right? We get other people on our side and we, we tell our plan. And if other people say, well, that sounds like a good plan, then we're convinced what? Well, it must be the right thing to do. Uh, but the question is not, do other people agree with it? The real question is, does God agree with it? Right, so that's, um, uh, that's what they do. And, and they even find an insider in Judas who uh, comes along and, and agrees to collaborate with them. Um, next thing that they do is they go to great lengths to justify what they're doing. And of course, they arrest Jesus and they have a trial and... Uh, Normally, the goal of a trial should be to determine someone's guilt or innocence. Right? That's what justice is. You're, taking, you're providing evidence to try to determine uh, if the charges against a criminal are substantiated. Right? Is he really guilty or not? But of course, these guys didn't have a trial to prove Jesus was guilty or innocent. They'd already determined he was guilty. Right? They'd already made up their minds. they already made up their plan. Um, their trial was to make themselves feel good, right? It was about justifying their plan and proving that they had a right to hate Jesus and to kill him. And so, of course, we won't go into the details of the trial, but we know it wasn't just, and they, um, 
uh, in the end, were convincing themselves they were doing the right thing. And, and that's, that's our way, right? We get a plan, we get an idea, and if we can convince ourselves it's right, uh, we'll, we'll charge ahead full, right? Uh, and I think it's very interesting that um, sometimes we know what's wrong, but we need to feel right about doing wrong. You've been there, right? You know something's wrong, but if you can just convince yourself, if you can just rationalize it enough that you can feel feel good about doing wrong and get some people to agree with you, you feel good about it, right? We can go forward. And it's interesting, why did they even bother with the trial? Why didn't they just go straight to Pilate? But that's human nature, right? We need to feel like, you know, we're doing the right thing and convince ourselves that our plan is just. Um, but of course, they can't do the plan by themselves, and so they leverage their power and influence. They need help. Because uh, the Jews could not crucify, they couldn't exercise capital punishment, they couldn't put somebody to death. So they need Pilate's help. So they go to the governor uh, of Judea, Pilate, and they, um, they get his, his help. Uh, and here again, they don't get it by praying, God. Uh, would you move in Pilate's heart so that he would really, you know, do your will? Is that what they do? No, here's what they do. Matthew 27, 20 to 23. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd. They're not laboring with God in prayer. They persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. So the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. They said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Uh, That's the way of man. Uh, You do whatever it takes to get what you want. And in this case, the the, the chief priests and the, the, the leaders of Israel persuade the crowd Look, we've, we've made up our mind and we just want you to get behind us and, and, and call demand for Jesus' uh, death. Um, another way of man is uh, to make yourself great by making others small. Uh, and we see this in the account of Jesus' trial and crucifixion by the number of people who mock him. And we won't go into details, but we know the soldiers dressed Jesus up like a king and put a crown of thorns on his head, and they cried out, Hail, King of the Jews! And they did it in great derision and mockery, uh, uh, mocking even the idea that he would claim to be king. But even more significant in Matthew, in chapter 27, as Jesus is on the cross, and Pilate has posted the sign at the top of the cross, uh, king of the Jews. That's, the, that's his crime. He's being executed because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And, uh, and the, 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 the crucifixion was always in a very public place. The Romans did that on purpose so that it would deter people from wanting to do the same kind of thing. Right? And people would pass by on a, on a busy street and they would see these you know, horribly beaten and, and, and people dying in agony. And there's Jesus, right? And so it says, as people passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Right? There's no pity or compassion as people see Jesus. They mock him. 
And that is human nature, right? One of the ways that we make ourselves feel good about ourselves is by belittling and putting down those who we think are beneath us. And it makes us feel good about ourselves. Um, It says, So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe him. Uh, Interesting, we'll come back to that. If he would just come down from the cross, then we would believe he's got real power. But what if he rises from the dead, right? We'll see that one in a minute. Um, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if if he desires him. Which, by the way, is a quote right out of Psalm 22. Uh, those words, almost word for word, right out of Psalm 22. For he said, I am the Son of God. And, and get this, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, this is bad, right? The robbers were like pretty much, I mean, they're also being crucified, right? They're also being made fun of. They're also being, I mean, they're, they're at the bottom. But even they can elevate themselves by, by mocking Jesus, right? Uh, Matthew skips the account of the one uh, who, who feels kind of bad about it and, and eventually uh, confesses. Um, um, and he just focuses on their, their mocking of Jesus, right? That's man's way. And of course, in the end, they get their way. Jesus is crucified, and there's a sense in which they... They were victorious. There's a sense in which man's way works. They got what they wanted. They killed Jesus. They got rid of their enemy by power, by force, by manipulation, by conniving, by uh, everything at their means. They got rid of their enemy. And as we know, Jesus died on the cross. And we'll read a little bit more of his death in a minute. Um, uh, and then there's the burial and, and, the, and, and, and even the resurrection. And I love what happens, how, uh, and, and this is what we kind of want to focus more on is resurrection. It's interesting even how they deal with the resurrection. Of course, uh, their plan was successful, right? And they, 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 they killed Jesus, they buried him. Um, but these guys are not stupid, and they begin to think through uh, some of the things that Jesus claimed. And, and, and they were aware of the fact, and it's a bit of an irony, an irony in the whole resurrection account, that the scribes and the Pharisees remembered that Jesus said he would rise in three days, and the disciples miss it. Right? Very interesting. Um, and they said, they said the next day after his death, and after his burial, the next day, which would have been the Sabbath, the day of preparation for the, uh, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, They're still planning and plotting, right? Notice what they say. Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was alive, after three days I will rise again. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud would be way worse than the first. I love those words, right? They they understand What's at stake here? It's like, yeah, Jesus was a problem before when he was teaching all this, all this stuff and he was undermining us at every point. But if, if, he, if this whole resurrection thing happens, we're really done, right? We are really done. 
Because that would be way worse than anything he ever taught if he rose from the dead. So here again, uh, and, and it's mind-boggling, it's mind-boggling how this works, because they don't really believe the resurrection. They think the only thing that could happen is if uh, the disciples launched this plan to go steal him. And I think it's ironic that the, this is the last thing from the disciples' mind, right? This is because they forgot all about this. They don't even know that Jesus predicted this. And they seem to be quite oblivious to what's coming. Um, so, so Pilate says, yeah, go make it to him. He says, you have your own guard. I don't need mine. I'm not giving you mine. You have your own temple guard. Go make the tomb secure. And so they go and seal it and they put guards around it. And even now, what they're trying to control the outcome. They're trying to make sure that they get their way. Right? But of course, their plan does not work. Right? Uh, God has other plans. And of course, Jesus does rise again. And it's not because he's stolen or because they robbed the body, but because he disappears out of the tomb. And an angel shows up. So verse 11. Uh, while they were, uh, well, well, so the angels show up and, and shakes the ground and uh, rolls the, the, the tomb away. And the, and the soldiers see all this. Um, and they are, they are actually, the, the soldiers, as it turns out in Matthew's account, the soldiers become the most reliable witnesses outside of the women to the resurrection. Because right? they see the stone rolled away. They see the angel who is shining like glory. They see the empty tomb right before they pass out <laughs> and become like dead men. And I love Matthew's phrase there. Here are these guys who are supposed to be guarding a dead man uh, who are now dead men guarding an empty tomb. Right? Some of the great humor and irony of, of Matthew's account. And, uh, and, and it says in verse 11 uh, that they go, uh, the guard goes to the city and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. Right? So here's... <clears throat> Direct eyewitness account. They go to the priest and they say, Hey, uh, like, you won't believe this, but this angel showed up, rolled the stone away, the tomb was empty, and then we, well, we passed out, right? But Jesus is gone. He's gone. He's not there, right? So here's, here's, here's witnesses. Here's the truth staring them right in the face, right? These are the guys who are mocking Jesus and said, Well, if he comes on off the cross, we would believe him. So now that they have first-hand eyewitness evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, they'll believe, right? No. They will not believe. Uh, instead, they create their own version of the truth. And they are going to stick to their version of the truth no matter what the facts are. That's man's way. Right? That's the way of man. We are going to create our own truth, and we're not going to let ourselves be confused by the facts. Right? They said, don't confuse us with the facts about Jesus not being there. It says, we're going to invent a lie. And they paid them a large sum of money. And they said, you tell the people, the disciples came and stole him while we were sleeping. Right? In the face of the resurrection, they would rather believe their own lie and lie about it. Right? And it's ironic that they, they, they accused Jesus of being a fake and an imposter and a liar. Uh, and how do they back up their story? By lying, right? By lying. And that's man's way. That's man's way, right? We would rather believe a lie that we've invented than to face the living God as he is, right? And so we do that, and people do that. If you don't believe it, I mean, take the theory of evolution. 
Um, man would believe anything than that God created the universe and that he's sovereign over it and that he created us. We'll believe uh, all kinds of myths about where we came from. So that's man's way, right? Uh, but what is God's way? Uh, three things. And again, we're not going to go into great detail about this, but uh, just, just highlight how God moves, how God works, how different God's way is. And what's ironic in this is that God is a God of infinite power. Right? If there was a way, if God wanted to uh, carry out his plan by force and by power and by armies, uh, he's, he could do that. But notice how he works in this story, in this account. First of all, God works primarily through suffering and death. Right? Primarily, his plan is accomplished in glory by sending Jesus to the cross to suffer and die. Uh, Matthew 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was uh, darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Jesus goes um, and really he dies, he suffers. Um, and, and of all the things that happened to Jesus, uh, the, the beatings and the whippings and the pulling out his beard, uh, Matthew skips all of that. Uh, he doesn't even mention that Jesus was actually nailed to the cross. We know that from other Gospels, not from Matthew. Uh, he just simply says he was crucified. Right? He gives no real attention to the, uh, the physical suffering that Jesus went through, uh, which was horrible. Uh, but that's not what really um, was the worst of it. I think G- Matthew highlights this because this was the worst, not the physical suffering, but being separated from his father. Um, there's a lot of debate in fact I just saw an article when when Jesus died did he go to hell (coughs) and there's a lot of controversy over where he went those three days between the cross and the empty tomb where was he Uh, did he descend to hell I'm not going to get into all that uh, argument I I don't believe he did uh, but I'm not going to explain why and you can just study that on your own but here's the reality Jesus experienced the full impact of hell on the cross when the Father turned his back on him. Right? Hell is not so much about a place as it is being separated from God. Ultimately, that's what hell is. And in, in, in this world, uh, it's not really hell, even though people are quite separated from God because of their own sin, but God's still present. And, and we're in a world where God's hand and his presence and his fingerprints are all over everything where God's revealing himself and he's pouring out his good grace even to sinful people. Hell will be that time when God removes everything of his presence and people really are bare and naked alone on their own. And Jesus experienced all that on the cross. There's a sense in which Jesus came to a place of utter and total defeat and losing everything, even his relationship with his father uh, for a brief moment. As God turned his back and and he was separated and he felt abandoned and forsaken by uh, by his father. And here he doesn't even call him father. It's my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Um, 
And that's God's way, right? A way of suffering, a way of defeat, a way of, uh, in a sense, failure, right? And all, uh, all the Sadducees and Pharisees, all the people watching, thought that they had won and that Jesus had failed completely. And even the disciples believed that, right? And that's God's way of redemption. Because there is no other way for the penalty and price of our sin to be covered than through Jesus' full and complete death and suffering and being forsaken. And because he was forsaken, we who trust in him will never be forsaken. Because he was abandoned on the cross, he could say to the disciples in in verse 20, we'll see in a minute, Lo, I am with, behold, I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. And that's, that's the power of the gospel, right? Through brokenness and forsakenness and defeat, uh, God is victorious, right? Second thing, um, God works through a very, and I didn't quite know how to put this. I called it selective revelation, but that's not really what I mean. Um, Maybe a better way to put it would be a very <clears throat> ineffective revelation. Let's call it that. God works through ineffective revelation. Like, here's how I would have done this, okay? So if it was me being God, and uh, I raised Jesus from the dead, <clears throat> I would have had Jesus appear not to the ladies, but to the, the soldiers. And I would have said, hi, you mocked me? Mock me now. Bring it on, bud. I just rose from the dead. Just try to kill me now, right? Guess what? You only get to die once. Just try, right? Let's go talk to, let's go talk to those, that chief priest right now. Like, I think that would have just been so cool, right? The guards go with Jesus to the chief priest and they say, Hey, I'm back. <laughs> Guess what? It didn't work. What are you going to do now? Right? Like, that would have, like, made a statement. <clears throat> he doesn't do that, right? He doesn't do that. He uses uh, selective revelation. He uses ineffective and weak witnesses. Um, and it's not that he doesn't have witnesses, and it's not that he doesn't re- reveal himself. On the cross, in fact, uh, when Jesus gave up, gave up his spirit, when it was at the end, it says in 2751, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and tombs were opened. And there was darkness. And when the centurion saw those who were with him, uh, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Okay, God revealed himself in the cross and in the, at the tomb. Uh, but the revelation was only evident to some. Those who had the eyes to see could see. The soldiers saw it, and the soldiers proclaimed, Truly, this was the Son of God. An amazing witness and testimony from Gentile soldiers. Uh, but but the, 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 the Jewish people, the, the Pharisees and the, the, the religious leaders of Israel, <clears throat> the signs, those powerful revelations went right by them. The veil in the temple was torn. Like, how did they not go, Whoa! What is this about? It went by them. Why doesn't God use a more powerful revelation? He uses uh, He uses rather ineffective revelation. Uh, Matthew twenty-eight one through seven. We we read it several times. uh, This angel shows up, and again, there's an earthquake. 
and there's the shaking of the ground, and there's uh, this angel in dazzling white, light, lightning white appearance. This is not a normal guy. Okay, this is pretty dramatic revelation. Uh, but the effect on the guards is that they pass out. <laughs> they don't have eyes to see. And it's the women who we would maybe consider to be more likely to pass out who stand brave before the angel. And they, they're invited to see what's happened and he talks to them. And he says, don't be afraid. Um, the witness is effective to them, but not to the soldiers, right? Um, and, and speaking of the women, okay, uh, aside from the soldiers who probably didn't believe, uh, but reported to the, uh, the, the chief priest, the, the main primary witness in Matthew's account, and the first witness in every account, in all four Gospels, the first witness of the resurrection were the women, the ladies, right? Now, in our day and age, we'd be like, well, that's no big deal. But you've got to understand that in Jesus' day, and, and again, this is not me, okay, this is culture. In Jesus' day and age, women were considered to be unreliable witnesses, Right? I'm not saying that, so don't come up and say, what do you mean? Okay. Uh, they just were treated that way. They were treated as being unreliable. And, and normally, if, if a woman testified in court, her, her testimony would not be considered very valid. And yet, who does God have show up? It's these group of women. Right? They're the ones watching at the, at the crucifixion. They're the ones watching at the tomb. And now they're at the empty tomb, and they're the ones who are the witnesses to the resurrection, the first primary witnesses. In fact, in verse, uh, after, after they see the angel, as they leave, it says, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, hey, what's up? Which is kind of a loose translation of what Jesus really said. Right? He says, hey, and I love it. I love, I love, I love how God does things. Right? The angel comes shining, dazzling white. Jesus is just a guy. He says, hey, good morning. He's not, he's not shining. He's not glowing in the dark. He's not floating, you know, uh, above the ground. I love, I love going, if you've ever been to some of the passion plays, it's a powerful thing, and I love the passion plays, but I love how in every passion play I've ever been to, when, when they show Jesus after the resurrection, he's always glowing in the dark and floating like 20 feet up in the air. Right? Looking very awesome and angelic and like divine. But that's not how he appeared. It's like, hey, good morning. I'm here. And livened in the flesh. As normal and ordinary as ever. But it was the women who saw him and who worshipped him. Uh, they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Um... God picks these unreliable witnesses, right? They're the ones who, who tell the story. They're the ones, and in Matthew, they go tell the disciples, and there's no account, and the other Gospels kind of fill in some of the holes. But in Matthew, uh, Jesus doesn't appear to the disciples until they get to Galilee at the very end before he ascends. Right? Where are the disciples, by the way? Where have, they, where have they been? Well, in Matthew's account, and again, the Gospel... Authors are, are um, picking parts of the story to communicate a message, right? They're not telling history. They're not always chronological because they're trying to make a point. And um, 
Matthew is trying to make a point here, and he intentionally leaves the disciples completely out. The last time we saw the disciples, the twelve, was at Jesus' arrest in Matthew 26.56. Before the trial, before the crucifixion, way back. Actually, several days ago. Uh, in fact, we don't see them all the way up to Galilee. So 40 days, 40 days have gone by. A long time. And where are the disciples? Well, it says in Matthew 26.56, Then all the disciples left him and fled. And in Matthew, that's where they stay. That's where they stay, right? They've disappeared. The only two exceptions are Peter, who, what, denies Jesus three times, and Judas, who hangs himself because he uh, betrayed Jesus. And the rest of the disciples are just AWOL the whole time, right? AWOL. Until what? Well, until uh, Matthew 20, 19 and 20, where Jesus appears to them and he commissions them. It says, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Okay, that's the first we see of them again. Uh, they go to the mountain which Jesus directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Go, go disciples, right? You guys haven't been around for the whole, since, since, since the arrest, and now you show up and some of you still are not convinced, right? Some doubted. Uh, the word there, doubt, actually, maybe a better way to say it is that they were uncertain. Uh, and it wasn't probably that they doubted Jesus' resurrection. At this point, we know that Jesus had appeared to them. We know that probably they were convinced of the resurrection. Uh, their uncertainty was more likely uncertain about their status with Jesus. Because every single one of them, and that's kind of Matthew's point, the last we saw of them is they had abandoned him. They had deserted him. They had fled when Jesus needed them. And now they come, and there is some uncertainty. We're here, and Jesus is here, but what's next for me, right? I've been like, I have failed. Every, every, not just Peter, every one of them had failed and misunderstood Jesus' mission. They had misunderstood the resurrection. They weren't expecting it. They weren't at the empty tomb waiting on the third day going, he said he was going to rise, let's go see They hadn't exercised faith. They had been skeptical when Jesus appeared to them. Right? And so, what is going to happen with them? Jesus appears to them, and they they worship, and there's some uncertainty, and Jesus said, you guys are the sorriest bunch of losers. Why did I pick you? What was I thinking? Is that what Jesus says? No, what does Jesus say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You go, therefore, and make disciples. Right? He commissions them. The first interaction we have between Jesus and his disciples after they abandon him is he commissions them for ministry. Do you get what that's about? Right? Jesus is saying, yeah, you guys are screw-ups. Uh, who, would, who would do this? Who would pick this group of cowardly, unfaithful, lost and bewildered people and say, okay, here, we're going to save the world and you're going to do it. Go and make disciples of the nations. Right? Who would do that? God does that, right? That is God's way. He works in weakness. And guess what? That's why he picked you and me. 
If he could pick failures like Peter and John and James, uh, he can use screw-ups like us too. Right? Um, and it's the way of grace. Right? It's the way of grace. The cross was sufficient and their sins were removed. And, and Jesus, um, he doesn't remember their failures. He doesn't dig up their mistakes. He commissions them. And that's grace, right? It's the way of grace. So which way works? Well, we, of course, we well know God's way works and man's way doesn't. Uh, but let me just close by thinking through a couple of ways that, that I think we can have the right mission. And, and I like that it ends here with the Great Commission. And, and, and we should all, and I believe most of us here in this room, are here because we believe we have been called and sent by God to make disciples of the nations. But just because we have the right mission, does that automatically guarantee that we're doing it in the right way? Well, I think this passage tells us that it's very easy to be quite religious and quite spiritual, even have the right mission handed to us from God, but you'd be doing it not uh, God's way, but man's way. Um, you know, man's way is to plan and scheme, to be strategic, right? Again, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't plan or we shouldn't be strategic. But the, the question is, whose strategy and whose plan are we implementing? Is it really God's plan or is it just mine? Right? Is it man's wisdom or is it God's wisdom? And God says, you know, my ways are not your ways and, and your ways are not my ways. Uh, too, I think too quickly and too easily, we assume that well, of course God agrees with my plan. It's brilliant. <laughs> Why would he not be on board with me? But God's ways oftentimes are very counter the way we would think. Right? Um, and we think if we convince enough people to join us, right? If we get enough people on our side. And, and this is where I see this in the missions world. You know, the debates and fights and, and all-out feuds over our mission strategy and methods. Right? Honestly. And I've seen teams can't even work together. And there's brokenness and hard feelings and hurt and strife because we're fighting over our way. That's a good sign it's not God's way. Right? If you're fighting and if you Yeah it, it's not God's way, right? It's 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 you're doing ministry man's way. Um Making ourselves great by making others small. Boy, have I seen this. Well, you would do that in ministry? You would use that strategy? Well, that's a hundred years old. You know, only stupid people would do that. Right? Of course, we wouldn't say that, right? But, but I see that, right? This, clearly our way is better. Our church is better. Our mission is better, right? And we mock and belittle things that are not my plan. Right? That's, that's man's way. Leveraging power and influence to control and manipulate and to force things to happen by my own will and my own power. That's man's way. And that is not God's way, right? Um, the right mission, the right way, God's way, is making disciples and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Jesus, Jesus has the way. Right? And he's revealed it in Scripture. And his way is through his authority, 
Um, and it is the way of weakness and suffering. Right? God calls us not to power plays, but to weakness and suffering. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Right? To serve. He, he calls us sometimes to defeat and failure. Because that's his way. Um, and, and we don't like it. Right? But it's his way. Um, he, he calls these women who were the least respected. He calls up, raises up fishermen who were uneducated. He calls people without influence or power to change kings and kingdoms. Right? Um, you know, we get ourselves in trouble. And there's nothing wrong with education. There's nothing wrong with improving ourselves. But do we think that I'm going to be effective in ministry because I'm more educated? Do I think I'm going to be effective in ministry because I work harder? Because I labor more than somebody else? That's not how we will be successful. Right? Labor and education and hard work are good things. But the power is in Jesus. Jesus says, I have been given all authority and power. Uh, the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection is what will make us successful, not our plan or our method or our strategy. Well, is this really, because that's what happened in the Gospels, was this really God's pattern for our life and ministry? Well, Paul thought so. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not pro- come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come with these great arguments to convince you. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, not great arguments, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Right? That's God's way. Right? God loves it when we fail in our own strength so that it's clearly his strength that accomplishes his work. Right? That's God's way. Uh, here, here's one last story, an example of this in somebody else's life, not in the Bible. Uh, Amy Carmichael, who granted lived a long time ago, who was a missionary mostly known for her work in India. But many people don't know that before, before she made it to India, she ended up actually being a missionary for a little while in Japan. And when she was in Japan, she was there um, uh, and couldn't speak the language, uh, barely understood, really didn't understand the culture at all. And um, they were there mostly passing out gospel tracts. And they would go around passing out gospel tracts. And she was constantly frustrated by this. Because she couldn't tell them. She couldn't answer questions. She didn't even know if they had questions. Because they would just talk to her. I don't know what to know. And she just felt frustrated that, why am I here and why am I doing this? And it kind of reached the pinnacle one day when, when they had heard of a man in the village where they were staying um, who had a demon. And coming from Ireland, she had never had a kind of a Christian background. She had never seen demon possession. She didn't know how to deal with demons. This guy was full on foaming at the mouth, had to be tied with cords, full on demon possession. And her and her colleague felt, well, we should go pray. They weren't actually invited, but they thought, well, we're Christians. <laughs> We've got Jesus. Let's go pray. Maybe God will do something. So they go, and she says, her in her own words, she said, we knelt and prayed, but it seemed as though the devil were mocking us. 
He grew more violent every moment. It was worse than useless to stay there. Can you think how I felt then? His name, that is the name of Jesus, dishonored among the heathen, and I had done it. Far, far better never to have come. This was the fiery dart which was hurled against me, and yet surely he had sent us. Surely it was no self-motivation. And she heard these words. My sheep, or God brought these words. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And the quiet which those words brought, I could hear again. All power is given to me. Uh, It is said, these signs shall follow them that believe. And in my name they shall cast out devils. Fear not, for I am with you. So with those words they left, and as the poor wife followed us to the door, she writes, with no thought of reproach for what must have seemed to her a cruel intrusion, I could tell her through our translator um, what I had received from God, that God would conquer. And when the evil spirit was come out, to, to let them know. She said, and yet, uh, as I went home, I'm afraid my faith was very weak. For I was almost broken down, and when uh, my dear friend Sarah met us with loving sympathy, she told us she too was praying, and it was a comfort. Um, Discouraged, failure. She wanted to show God's glory, and she went and prayed, and nothing happened, and she felt like she had dishonored the name of Jesus and had failed. But one hour later, news came that the demon had left, and that the man uh, was completely changed, and in his right mind, uh, and a different person. And she went and visited him, and, 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 and he was a different person, truly transformed. Uh, and she, she concludes, as she reflected later on this whole experience, she said, I've been reading of an opinion by a professor of the Imperial University of Japan about the phenomenon of, of uh, demon possession and how to exercise demons. Um, and she says, Now I see how what seemed a serious hindrance at first has resulted in glory to his name. The exorcist's first endeavor is to impress upon the patient his own great power and thereby win his confidence. Had this man or his friend believed in us, had I been stronger in the crisis hour and seemed as one empowered, the cure might have been attributed to us. As it was, they all saw clearly enough that we were nothing. There was nothing tangible to lay hold of. All the glory went straight to God. Truly, we may trust him to his plan and his means for us to work enough to watch the master work. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.